Good morning and welcome again. If you are a guest here, special welcome to you. We're glad that you're joining us to worship King Jesus this morning. And if you are tuning in online for the first time, uh, welcome to you. We hope to meet you face to face in the next couple weeks. And those brothers who are at uh, Cabarrus Development Center watching online, grateful to have you guys with us this morning. Awesome and thankful for everything that God's been doing in your hearts and lives. All right, we're going to continue through this series of Prophet, Priests, and Kings. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you're exploring Christianity, kind of new to the Bible, the Bible is one story made up of 66 books, and 1 Samuel is one of those 66 books that's in the Old Testament, the left side of the Bible. The larger number you'll find is the chapter number, and the smaller numbers are the verses. We'll be in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, before we read this section, let me give us a little context, because chapter 4, 5, and 6 all have a common thread that runs throughout it, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, some of you might have seen the Hollywood documentary on the Ark of God. Very familiar with that uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Um, but this is actually the true story, not a fictional story. This is a true story about how uh, God's people lost the Ark and what God did through all of that. And so you see this picture, uh, thanks to Indiana Jones, we have a, an idea, right, of what the Ark looked like. God give us, gives us the specific details in there. And it's impressive, uh, but it's actually a lot smaller than you might think. Uh, it's only about four feet long or so, two and a half feet wide by two and a half feet tall. Uh, but everything within the ark communicated something extremely important. So as you see it up there, you see that it was gold, uh, representing the purity and the holiness of God. You see these angels on the top. You kind of can't tell they're angels, but their, their wings kind of go across it like that. And there's a slab of gold underneath that. It's called the mercy seat. It's extremely important. We'll get back to that uh, before our end of the time today. And inside of this box, inside of this ark, was the law of God. Uh, the thing that was meant to guide us and be a light to us and lead us is underneath that, but above it is the mercy seat of God. Now, one of the most important things you got to realize about the ark is it represented the presence of God. God tells his people that the temple is going to kind of be my footstool. And so there on top of the ark, in between those angels, was a light that would shine, representing the presence of God. So as we talk about the ark today, through each one of these different chapters, I want you to, in your mind, think about the presence of God as we talk and think about the ark as a whole. So let's look, 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says this, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, we'll get back to that in a minute, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, that's their idol, and they set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon did not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. That's a little humor right there. Uh, even though they don't believe in the Lord God, they're afraid that the 
the, their idol might fall down again, and so they don't even walk in front of it. There's just like a rule in place, like we're not even going to walk in front of this just in case it accidentally falls down. Uh, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dragon our God. So they sent and gathered all together the lords of the Philistines, and they said, What shall we do with the ark, the God of Israel? Now this is the question we're going to rest on today, and it's a very, very important question. What do you do with the ark of God? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors brought out, broke out on them. So they then sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people cried out. They're, they're literally waiting there at the gate for the ark to come in. And they cry out, they have brought this around to us, the ark of God of Israel, to kill us and our people. Then they sent it, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send it away. Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. But there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we confess that we need your help to rightly understand your word and to rightly apply it to our lives. So open up our, our ears to hear your word, and then soften our hearts uh, to receive it this morning. Now, let me invite you to silently pray for yourself, that you'll be able to listen and apply God's word to your life. Pray that right now. Pray for me, too, that God would speak through weakness to sanctify us and to glorify God. Pray for me. Lord Jesus, speak now for your servants here. It's in your name we ask. Amen. Amen. All right, verse 8 is a... Very important question for each one of these chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? Now we find here in chapter 5, when I was reading that, the, the political leaders of the Philistines get together and they ask this question, what are we supposed to do? What do we do with the presence of God in our lives? But they're still confused and they know they need to send it away, but they're not quite sure how to do that or when to do that. And so if you actually look in chapter 6, verse 2, they, they don't invite the political leaders, they invite their religious leaders at that time, and they say the same question, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? And so that's my question to us today. What are you going to do with the ark of the Lord today? What am I going to do? How are we going to respond to the ark of the Lord today? Now we find three responses, each one in these chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. So we're going to unpack each one of those, but I want you to listen to it. 
this should apply to our lives. And I want to ask each one of them, each one of these responses that we look at, I want to ask it in the form of a question. And the first one is this, will you abuse the ark? Will you abuse the ark? See, that's the first response that we find is that the people of God have abused the ark of God. Now, chapter 5 starts, and it says, when the Philistines have captured the ark, when they captured it, this is a great synopsis of everything that happened in chapter 4. For your extra credit, really encourage you to go back and read chapter 4, but let me kind of sum it up for us as we move forward, thinking about this, this idea, will we abuse the ark? You see, in chapter 4, God's people are not living for God. <laughs> Actually, it might be too generous to call them God's people at that time. See, they have heard God give them commands to, to love him and to worship him and to, to love and to care for others. And instead, the way they're living their life and the way they're building their society is for us. They're loving others. They're loving themselves. They're not being selfless. They're being selfish. And they see all these problems and all these things that are starting to happen in their culture and in their nation and around them. And they're trying to figure out solutions. How do we fix the problems that are before us? Now, one of the key problems was they were in a battle with the Philistines. And they were their enemies. And they continued to lose these battles. They continued to lose these fights. And instead of humbling their hearts before the Lord and praying to him and leaving some of their sins behind and pursuing the Lord, instead they're like, man, what do we do? How do we not change anything about our lives and yet still be able to, to move forward in our prosperity like we hoped and dreamed we would? And so while they're sitting there and they're debating, they're like, you know what? Man, let's just do what the traditions of old were. Let's go back. You, you guys remember? Do, do, you, do you remember Jericho? And there was no way we were supposed to win that battle. We were going to lose. There were big, thick walls and this massive city. But you know what? We took the ark with us. And the ark, we sang these songs. We marched around the city and the walls fell down. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, and you remember that other time? Like we had to cross this river, but it was really too deep. But we had the ark with us. And so... God being with, there with us is in his presence. He parted the Jordan River and we were able to walk through it. Like, y'all remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, okay, idea. Let's just keep those traditions and let's get the ark and let's go to battle against the Philistines and we're, we're going to win. We're gonna, well, there's no way that we can lose when we keep these traditions of old. Now, they keep this tradition and they, they go and they take the ark and they're so excited and they're cheering that the Philistines actually get scared for a minute. But then they find out real quickly that it's just the facade. The heart is not there. And so they go into battle, and God allows them to be defeated. They lose 30,000 men and the ark. That's why it says in chapter 5, verse 1, the ark was captured. That's when it was captured. Now, there was a guy whose job was to go back and tell the city how the battle went. And so he runs back, and he runs into the city, and he says in the city... We've lost the battle. There's been thousands and thousands of people that have died, and the ark of God has been taken. So, so Eli, who's the high priest at that time, says he was a little overweight, and he was in his 90s, and so he hears this news, and he's shocked, and he falls back, and he breaks his neck, and he dies. It's a sad picture. And then one of the, the, the wives of Hophni and Phinehas She's there, and she goes into labor when she hears this tragic news about the glory of God departing. And she has a child, and as she's there and dies giving birth to this child, she says, call this child's name Ichabod, which is a terrible name, right? Like, it even sounds bad. And I'm sorry if your name's Ichabod here. We're glad you're here. If your name is Ichabod, there's nothing wrong with that name. 
she was making a point with that name when she said that. Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. See, they thought they could use the ark for their means and their end. They thought what they could do is they could put on the, the robes of religion and tradition without the heart and that they could still do everything they wanted. In modern times, we could say they, they thought that they could sing Amazing Grace while living and doing whatever they wanted to in their life. And God is being extremely clear to us. You can't abuse and use the ark in that way. So they lost the presence of God. Now, two application points that I want to make to us. Just as warning, as we're tempted, all of us, to abuse the, the ark in such a way. Abuse the, the presence of God in such a way. First application is this. Don't have a facade of godliness without the foundation of God. Don't have a facade of godliness without the foundation of God. You see, we can try to use God for our own ends, but it won't work. God will not be a means to our ends. He is the end. And guess what? He's also the beginning. He's the alpha and he is the omega. He's the first and he's the last. Everything is about him, his glory. He's not going to be used as a means to our end. We can go around living however we want to, but come in here and use God as a lucky rabbit's foot to get whatever we wish. He is the end. He is the purpose of all things. So please guard your heart. May we all guard our heart that we don't have the facade of godliness, but not the foundation of God. He is meant to be a rock, the foundation for us, that we plant our faith, that we trust in. The one who is stable when everything else in the world is unstable. Oh, if the people of God at this time would have looked to him and repented of sins and trusted in him and sought after his glory and his name and his fame, I think this chapter 4 would have looked much different, much different. They move forward with tradition without the heart, without the heart. Second application is this, please do not believe that right theology and right morality means God owes you. Let me say that again. Don't believe that right theology and right morality means that God owes you. That's what happens for God's people in chapter 4. They're like, we're God's people, right? We even remember all these Old Testament stories about how God worked in the past so we've got the right theology. We, we're trying to be moral people, at least externally. And so God owes us. So we're going to march in. And when we have the ark and we've kept the traditions, God now needs to do what I desire for him to do. We cannot manage God. It's not how it works. He's the Lord over all. He's the king of all kings. He's not meant to be managed, but to be loved and worshipped. So this passage is, is teaching us. It's telling us, when we read the words, the Philistines captured the ark of God, it's telling us the, the reality that we cannot look at God and expect him to meet our means, and that we can control him to our ends. No, God will do what he wants to do, for he is the Lord God Almighty. This passage is calling us to change our view of who God is in our eyes, and our hearts. See, he's the Lord. He's not a butler. He's not a butler to us that we boss around and tell him what we want, and he just runs and do, does that. And this can be a hard truth for us to believe. But I believe as we hold to this truth, 
we cling to this truth, we find hope and life and joy in the Lord. I believe if they would have submitted to the Lord and repented of their sins at this time, they would have found joy. They would have found life. They would have found relief even in the midst of the pain that they might have been going through. God's way is always a better way, even if it's confusing for us, even if it's hazy for us. Coming to God is where we find life, where we find hope, where we find that firm foundation. God owes us nothing, but in his grace, he gives us everything, everything. So that's the first response. Will you abuse the ark of God? The second response is this. Will you try and add the ark to your life? Will you try to add the ark? Will you try to add the presence of God to your life alongside of many other things? Now, this point, this response might sound better than the first response. But what we find is that God is not about being one among many things in your life. God doesn't place second place in our life. He doesn't. And we find that from the response of the Philistines. In verse 2 of chapter 5, it says that the Philistines, once they've taken the ark, what they do is they bring it back to, to their city and they go in and they put it into their temple. And their temple would have been full of all these different idols, all these different gods. They just mentioned Dragon as one of their gods. They go in there and they're like, here's our buffet line. Here's our buffet line of gods. Let's take the ark of God and let's put it, it says specifically, beside Dagon. So let's put it beside our kind of head God, but we also have all these other gods. And let's just align it up and add it to our lives. Because, hey, we can worship Dagon and we can worship the God of Israel and we can worship all these other idols and all this is good. And God's like, no, it's not He will not be one among many idols in our life. He won't do it. And he shows us in a number of ways why that's not going to happen. And one of the ways is he shows us that he's greater than all these idols. They put the, the, the ark there beside Dagon. And it says the next morning they wake up and Dagon has fallen down before the ark of the Lord. Which they're probably thinking, well, it's... Maybe a storm came through last night, and maybe it blew it down, or some, some, some youth came in here, and they had a little fun, and they kicked it over, or something happened. And so they're like, let's just prop it back up, right? They have to go get their God, their idol, and they have to lift him back up and put him back in his place. And God's like, nope, you misunderstood me, so let me do it again. And it says that in the next few verses, that the next time they come in, early the next morning, it's fallen on the ground, and the statue has lost its head and its hands. Now... We might not understand what's being communicated there, but that's a really bold statement. Because the head was a picture of wisdom, knowledge. And the hands were where the power came from. And you were a strong person if you had strong hands, right? That's a, the action behind it. And this idol has fallen before the Lord God Almighty with its head missing because it's a foolish and empty God. It's hands missing because it has no power to rescue or to save. It doesn't. God is communicating to all those who went in there, all those different priests of these false gods, that the Lord God is the one true God. And so this word starts to spread throughout the city that this is what's happened. We couldn't move this statue, and yet here it is, falling before the ark two days in a row. But God doesn't just want the word to go forth, and he doesn't just want the priests of that false God to believe. He wants everyone to know the reality that he is the one God, that you can't add any alongside of him. 
So what he's going to do is he's going to put on display that he is the God of life and death itself. And so the people in the city hear this, and they could have thought, well, that doesn't mean that he's the real God. And then they start to get sick. They start to get tumors, and people start to die. And God is showing his power and his might, wanting all to see and all to know that you don't add him alongside of other gods. He is the only God, the one who has power and wisdom and might, the one who holds life and death in his hand himself. This is the Lord who is worthy to be worshipped with all of your life. And the people, the Philistines, they see this. They see this and they ask, okay, what are we going to do with the ark of God? How are we going to respond? And in verse 11, they're like, okay, it's, it's got to return. It's got to get out of here. We've got to get rid of it. It's so sad. God is stirring in their hearts and showing that he's the true God. And instead of bending the knee and worshiping him as the only God, instead of seeing his infinite wisdom and his infinite power and bowing the knee, they're like, let's just get him out of our life. Let's just continue to live however we want to live and just get him away. It's a sad picture. God is stirring in their souls and in their heart that they would look to him as the true king. And they're coming up with excuse after excuse or reason after reason to just let it fade away. Many of us in this room are even doing the same thing about this passage right now. Or maybe you're watching online and you're, you're thinking of ways to justify why this doesn't apply to you. And why this doesn't really matter to your life. You see, some of us, we read this and we're like, yeah, but the Philistines, they're so gullible. <laughs> they're so gullible thing, people. They just think there's like a ghost behind every tree and there's some spiritual idol up there. So like, we can't believe anything that they're, that they're saying, which is not true. <laughs> they're, they're not gullible people. When you get into chapter 6, it's fascinating. They're worried that all of this might be a coincidence. They've moved around from city to city to city, and people keep getting sick, and crazy things keep happening, and they're like, you know what? We don't really think this God's the real God, and God's like, go ahead, test me. Try it out. And in chapter 6, what you find is they're like, okay, maybe this is a coincidence. This is how we're going to prove if this is the real God or not. So what they do is they get two milking cows, and that's important. They call them milking cows in chapter 6 because they have just had calves. They have these babies. And mama cows always got to be close to baby cow, Right? And they're like, you're going to get these milking cows. We're going to hook them up to this cart. They've never been hooked up to a cart before, so they're going to have no idea what they're doing. We're not going to put a driver on this cart. We're just going to let them go wherever they want to. And in the back, we're going to put the ark of the Lord. And this is how we're going to return it to, to the people of God. And the ark that's in, in, in the back, we'll just see what happens. We'll see what happens. Because what should have happened are those milking cows would turn around and go right back into the city to their calves. Because they knew that's what they needed to take care of. And they're like, if this is all a coincidence, then they'll go to their babies. But if it's the one true God, then it'll go straight to Israel. They're not gullible. They're not idiots. They're wanting to discern, is this the true God? And chapter 6 tells us that they go straight back to Israel. So don't hear this this morning and say, oh, that's just people in the past. Those are just gullible people. No, they're not. They put God to the test and God shows them that I am the one true God. Don't add me alongside others. Worship me as the only God. Others of you might say, well, Ryan, they're worshiping like idols, like statues and stones. Like, I don't worship that kind of stuff in my life, so this doesn't apply to me at all, right? That's the temptation we have in our heart. Now, they had tangible statues, some wooden, some stone at that time. 
So yes, you could tangibly touch them, but I feel like maybe our idols today are much deeper. They might not be tangible, but they are rooted deep into our heart, into our soul. And there's a book I can't recommend more highly uh, called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. And in there, he calls an idol, not a statue, not a wooden thing, not, not, nothing like that. He says a statue is anything, or an idol is anything that you love more than God or try to love alongside of God. That's what an idol is. And so he says we look at our lives, and you can look at relationships and how people can worship that. You can look at your job. You can look at your grades as the kind of pinnacle, the thing that gives you joy and peace. You can look at your appearance and your health. And all of those things, he says, all of those are just the fruit of the true idol of your heart. All of those things are just the fruit, but there's a deep root. There's a deep root, or he says, core idol. There's four core idols that all these other fruits in our life come from. These are the four idols, and I think that he's right in his assessment. He says, one, we worship the idol of power. We can't touch that, right? We can't carve a stone out of power, but we live a life in such a way we worship power. Now, if you struggle with the idol of power, this is what it looks like for you. You long for influence so much. You desire recognition and respect. You want everyone to know who you are. You may even think that serving, it's beneath you. Like other people should be serving you. You expect to be thanked. So when people don't thank you, you get frustrated and you get angry because I deserve to be thanked. They need to tell me thank you all the time because I am so important. If you fall into worshiping this idol of power, you would rather be feared than loved as long as you're not forgotten. You see, being forgotten, people not talking about you, that is more painful to you than maybe anything else. That's what wrecks you if you worship at the idol of power. And you know what? Disrespect will drive you crazy. Because you want to be the power, the influence. And so disrespecting you, whether that comes from a, a son or daughter that you have, or whether that comes from an employee, you just don't deal with disrespect well. It crushes you. It makes you angry. If you see that in your heart, in your life, that means you're worshiping the idol of power. The second root idol is approval. Approval. Some of you worship at the altar of approval. Acceptance is everything to you. You live for likes and compliments, and they're never enough. Even when somebody gives you a compliment, your mind is already thinking of the critique or the negative side of that compliment. Somebody said to you today, oh man, that dress looks really pretty, you look really great today. And your mind went, did I not look good last week? Did I, was I not, did I not, I saw them yesterday, they didn't say it to me yesterday. Does that, and so you're always hungering for more and more compliments, right? Someone who, who worships at the altar of approval, comp comparison is killing you. And social media is your drug of choice. See, if you worship at the, the idol of approval, you will never confront a friend. Because the reality is that that friendship is more important to you than that friend. What they think about you is more important than their well-being. And so you would never say anything that would hurt their feelings, even if it makes them better, because you want their friendship. You want their approval. 
I believe this idol is the one that keeps us as believers from sharing the gospel faithfully. Because we're so afraid of what others might think of us. And we want to be approved instead of looking to the one who approval should come from. I think God himself. Maybe you worship at the root idol of comfort. You live for pleasure, right? This could be the, the pleasure of food. could be the, the comfort of laziness. could be sex. could be shopping. Right? Like you, that is your core idol. You want comfort. You want pleasure. And you'll do whatever you can, whether it's money or time, in order to get that. If you fall into this category, what you'll find is the tendency is just you love vacation. Vacation is your end-all, be-all. You can't remember your last three vacations, but this one coming up is going to be epic, right? You think about it all the time, you plan it, and what you find is you do it and it wasn't as good as your heart hoped it would be. So you've got to think about the next vacation and the next one because you worship at the idol or at the altar of comfort. If you worship at this idol of comfort as well, uh, it will change the way you look at your house, You'll never look at your house uh, as a gift from God to be utilized for his glory because it's about your comfort. And I would fall into this category, right, this category of comfort, okay? So I'm speaking to us right now when I say this. But you have your house, everything is where it's supposed to go, right? And you don't want all these hooligans from the church coming in, messing up your couch, right, your new couch you just bought, the paint that you just put on your walls, like, don't let them come in here and mess all this stuff up because, man, I have everything right where it's supposed to go, and I don't want them to break anything because it's all about your comfort and your pleasure. And so to sacrifice and to give that to the Lord, is, it's just hard for you. If you worship at this idol as well, you're most likely never going to go on a mission trip because your environment and your comfort is far more important than other people's salvation. You think about getting on a plane, oh, that's not comfortable. I don't want to do that. You think about going to a third world, world country and you're like, man, I won't have the amenities I'm used to. I won't have hot water. I won't get to go to five to ten different restaurants to choose which one I want to eat at for lunch. I have to sacrifice all of those things and you're just like, oh, no, I, I, I just can't do that. Like, it would be so uncomfortable for me to branch out and do that. Even a domestic trip, going up to Boston or serving it that way, you're like, ah, but, but it messes up my, my day. Like, it's just not part of my plan. If you're really honest with yourself and you think about it, what you're saying is my comfort matters more than other salvation. May we not worship the idol of comfort. The fourth root uh, idol is this, control. Control. If you worship at the idol of control, then you think everything must go according to your plan. Uncertainty threatens you and scares you, terrifies you when you worship at the idol of control. And faith? Faith is just a philosophical idea, not a daily reality for your life. If you fall into this category of worshiping control, you think, if people would just listen to me and do what I say, then everything in the world would go right. Because I know, right? Like, I know, like, if I could control everything, then everything would go perfectly. Anything that, that shakes your, your daily routine shakes your soul. You always have to be right if control is the idol you struggle with. You always have to be right, and you always have to have the last word. Many of us who, who worship at the, the altar of control, we many times work 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week. You know why? Because work is a lot easier to control 
than family. I can't make my teenager do this or that. I can't make my spouse respond to me in this way. But I go into work, man, I tell an employee, do this, and they do it. I look at a coworker, I say, I need this thing done, and they do it. And so we would rather stay at work and work all the time because it's, we're in control there, right? We're in control there. This is an idol that will forsake you and leave you hopeless. So every time in our lives when we run to, to all these different things thinking that they'll ultimately satisfy us, whether that's our family or sex or money or sports or entertainment or travel, all of these things are ultimately just behavior responses to worshiping one of these four core idols. Power, acceptance, comfort, or control. Now, some of you have been living for one of those for a long time, and God's been stirring your heart, not just now, but over the last weeks and months, and you're like, man, I want to leave that behind. Like, how do, I, how do I get out of living for that and living for something that brings joy and life? Well, first you have to understand that idols cannot be tamed. They can only be toppled. Remember what this point is? You, you can look at the ark and respond to the ark by adding it to your life alongside of many other things. God's like, nope, that's not how this works. I am the only God. I am the one who sits in the throne of your heart and your life. You don't add me among any, many others. So you can't tame your idol. You can't say, come on over here and just sit alongside of Christ in my life. No, you have to topple it. And when you topple it, you have to replace it with something better. Now here's the beauty of this. Christ is something better. If you, don't, if you don't hear anything else, please hear my, my heart of pleading with you to see. You long for power in your life? Come to Christ. He is the one of all power. You will never have all control and power in your life. If you want power, the gospel even tells us that he adopts us into his family and that one day when he comes again, we will be co-heirs with Christ. You want to talk about power? Reigning with Christ for all of eternity? There's the comfort and power that you're longing for. That's where it's found. So don't try to find power in your job or in your family or in yourself. It's not meant to be found there. It's meant to be found in the Lord God Almighty. If you want approval, if you want to topple that idol of approval in your life instead of tame it, then look to God, the one who will give you perfect approval through his blood that he's shed for you on the cross. I want you to think about this. Jesus knows you, knows the depths of your heart. He doesn't just know what you've posted on social media. He doesn't know your A-roll footage, right? All the great moments and the great food and the great places that you've been and everything you've done really well. No, he knows your B, your C, your D, your F footage of your life. He knows the depths of your sin and wickedness, and Jesus still says, and I'll accept you. And I'll love you. If you'll come to me and come to the cross where more mercy was poured out, that we could be forgiven and accepted. There is no greater acceptance than being accepted by the one who knows your heart and the depths of it and says, and I still love you. And all of your faults and failures, I still love you and I still gave my life for you. If you long for approval, don't look at this world that will change week to week and month to month. Don't look at your social media friends who will follow you one day and forget you the next. Go to the Lord God Almighty for the ultimate approval. Comfort. You're pursuing comfort. You're pursuing pleasure with your life. God tells us in Psalm 16, verse 11, in my presence, or in your presence, there is fullness 
of joy. That is complete joy, fullness of joy. And at your hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you realize that all the pleasures that we end up worshiping come from the God who's good and has given it to us? I mean, we, we, we look and we're like, a lot of people give their life for, for appetite and taste. Just the joy of a good meal. Who gave us taste? Who gave us appetite to enjoy the savory, filet, bacon-wrapped, cooked medium? Like just, who gave us the joy of being able to have that meal? God did. God did. We will pour our lives into lust and into sex. Who do you think invented that? God did. Man didn't come up with that idea. God created this great gift and said, use it in this way and enjoy it. One of his first commands he gave was, be fruitful and multiply. It was a command God gave us to enjoy this gift. We try to give our lives to these good gifts and treat them as gods. We will always end up lacking. And when we go to the God, the giver of all good gifts, we'll find satisfaction. If you worship at the idol of control, look to God. He's the only one that's in control. His sovereignty and his providence reigns. It reigns. We can kind of control everything in our lives, trusting more in ourselves than God, and we will always be stressed and anxious. And that includes your life as well as your kids. Learn this term this week. There's now a new term, not helicopter parent, where you fall around your kids, but lawnmower parent, where you go in front of your kids and you try to control everything in their life, and so you mow down any obstacle in front of them so they can fall behind you. You don't even want to just control your life. You want to control your kids' lives. Only we turn that anxiety and that work to prayer for ourselves and for our kids, that they would look to the one who is in control and trust him. Trust him, the only true king. Now, if you're, if you're here and you see different idols in your heart and your life, that's not enough. It's not just enough to notice, oh, I do worship this idol of power. Yeah, I see that. No, we, we, remember, we can't tame it. We have to topple it. We can't line it up alongside of God. We need to submit it before the Lord. So if you really want to grow deeper in your relationship with God, then this week I would challenge you, this week I would challenge you to go to your small group and to talk through these four points. Be honest. Let your small group talk about each one and say, maybe you're, maybe you're like me, you kind of swim in each one of those four at different times in your life, right? And be honest and real to talk about these things and say, man, pray for me as I struggle with this. God's word says to pray for one another so we don't fall into sin and temptation. And what we like to do is say, well, I'll just hide all my sin and hide all my temptation and never talk about it. And so nobody ever knows. That's not how God's word describes it. We bring these core idols to our brothers and sisters in Christ and allow God to work in our life and their life so that we can be more like him. So we can, we can look at the, the ark of God and try to abuse it. We can look at the ark of God and try to line it up in our life along with these other idols. Or we can look at the ark and find mercy. Find mercy. This third point I, I give in a question as well. Will you find mercy at the ark? You see, all of the, the people are seen visibly the ark. As they abuse it and they take it into battle, the ark is there. As they move it from city to city and they see all these bad things happen, the ark visibly is there. They can see it. And why that matters is because the ark was designed to communicate something to us as humans. It's meant to communicate something to us about ourselves and about God. 
And so everywhere this ark goes, the gospel is being proclaimed just through the presence of the ark being there. You see, inside the ark were the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And all of us have broken that, whether externally or internally, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we have fallen short of God's commands for our life. And they are there inside the ark, a constant reminder of how we have failed, how there's a great chasm between us and God. But also, what you find at the ark it's the mercy seat. And the mercy seat isn't just anywhere. The mercy seat actually sits above the law of God. And once a year, there was a pure and spotless lamb that was slain and was gone in there, and his blood was poured over the mercy seat, reminding us that because of our sin and our guilt and our shame, we deserved death. And somebody came and died in our place to atone for our sins. Old Testament, the Lamb of God. But then you come to the New Testament. And you see that Christ is the ultimate picture of this. He is the substance of that Old Testament reality. You see, when Jesus went to the cross and died for us, his blood was shed for us, we're remembering this truth, the truth of the mercy seat. That yes, underneath it are our faults and our failures, but over it, Christ's sin covers all of our sins. If we'll confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. This is why it's so important, church, that it says when Christ went to the cross and he died not just for us, but in our place, right? He dies on the cross and it says that the, in the temple, the veil was torn from top to bottom. That veil was the veil that separated humanity from the holy of holies. The holies of holies is where the ark of God would dwell, and as Jesus dies and pours out his blood and gives his life to forgive us of our failings, of our worshiping of these idols, that veil is torn. That now we can come into the presence of God through the mercy of Jesus Christ. And church family, as we come to the Lord's Supper today, this is what we're remembering. We're remembering what the ark proclaimed, that there was a mercy seat and there was a need for for forgiveness of our sins and how Christ paid that debt for us. This is a beautiful picture. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper now and as we take this, this is for believers. We're proclaiming as believers that we believe that Christ's body was given for us, for our sins, for our idols that we tried to put in, in the place of God or tried to abuse instead of trusting in God. His blood was poured out to remove our sins and our shame as far as east is from the west. So this is a reminder for believers and a proclamation of believers that we trust and believe in Jesus. His works, not our works. His works in our place. So I would say if you're a believer, take this with great joy and worship today. But if you haven't trusted in Christ, and as I give us a time to pray, confess our sins, prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, I would invite you to maybe put this down and to pray and to confess Jesus is Lord of your life. And it is, it is really simple to do. It was costly, but it was really simple for us to believe in Christ. Just to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And to believe that Jesus is that Savior who died in your place. 
And then confess him as Lord. Confess him as Lord of all of your life. Not a portion, not a piece, all of it. If you pray that prayer today, God promises that he'll save you. Remember, he knows the depths of your heart, and he loves you the same. If you'll come to him, confess your sins, confess that he's Lord, and admit he will save you. So church family, let me start us in prayer, then I'll give you a minute to confess your sins before the Lord silently, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper as assurance of our pardon. Pray with me.